The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But... Only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, mutilation, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for young listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For support, victims and survivors of domestic violence can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit www.thehotline.org. Jana Basuti woke up with a start. Someone was banging frantically at her front door, ringing the bell over and over again. It was barely five o'clock in the morning. As she felt her husband lurch out of bed, she wondered who on earth could be visiting at this hour. Moments later, Jana's husband returned and told her that it was Lorena. She was waiting in their living room. Jana felt her heart sink as she wondered what John had done to Lorena now. She had warned Lorena again and again that it was long past time to leave. If Lorena didn't act soon, the violence was only going to get worse. When Jana went downstairs, she saw Lorena cowering in a corner, sobbing in a fetal position. Through her tears, she was trying to tell Jana something. Jana couldn't understand it at first, but then she heard the words, I cut John. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Last week, we covered how 19-year-old Ecuadorian immigrant Lorena Gallo met 21-year-old Marine Lance Corporal John Wayne Bobbitt in 1988. We talked about their whirlwind courtship and Lorena's allegations that John abused her throughout their marriage until June of 1993. At that point, the couple considered getting divorced, but Lorena feared that John would stalk her if they separated. Despite these worries, she made plans to leave John that summer and spoke to several friends and neighbors about her intentions to move out. John and Lorena were still cohabitating on the night of June 22, 1993. That night, John went out drinking with his friend, Robert Johnston, who was staying at the Bobbitt's apartment. The men returned home around 3 a.m. Robert fell asleep on the living room couch and John went into the bedroom. Then, according to Lorena, John raped her. Afterward, he fell asleep. Lorena, hysterical, went into the kitchen to get a glass of water and spotted a knife on the counter. This week, we'll explore the infamous act of mutilation that ended John and Lorena's marriage. We'll also talk about the charges brought against the couple and the highly publicized trials that followed. In our final episode next week, We'll track what happened to John and Lorena in the 25 years since the media circus took over their lives. Lorena Bobbitt does not have a clear recollection of what happened after she returned to the bedroom on the morning of June 23, 1993. Later, it became clear what she must have done, but she doesn't have specific memories of going back to the bedroom and confronting John. Before I continue with Lorena's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Lorena may have had trouble remembering what happened that morning because the memories are too stressful for her to recall. According to a 2015 study led by Northwestern medicine scientists, some memories are so traumatic that they cannot be consciously accessed. Dr. Yelena Radulovich, the principal investigator of the study, said that when the brain stores traumatic memories, it's an entirely different system, even at the genetic and molecular level, than the one that encodes normal memories. This different system of the brain acts as a protective mechanism to prevent a person from re-experiencing an event that will cause them distress. When Lorena went into the bedroom, John was in a deep sleep, lying on his back. He woke up when he felt a jerk to his penis, followed by searing pain. Then he saw Lorena dash out of the room, out of the corner of his eye. Lorena grabbed her purse from the kitchen counter and fled the apartment. She got into her car and hurriedly drove off. She was still holding the knife in one hand and her husband's penis in the other. At one point, she slowed at a stop sign and tried to make a turn, but she couldn't rotate the wheel because her hands were full. She finally registered what she was holding and it hit her what she had done. 
she screamed and flung the body part out of the car's open window. Back at the apartment, John was lightheaded from blood loss, but he managed to get out of bed and apply pressure on his wound. He shook his friend Robert awake on the couch and said, Gotta go, gotta go. It took a moment for Robert to understand what was happening. He thought John was waking him up to get ready for work, and he went to the bathroom to brush his teeth. Then he noticed all the blood. John told him, You'd better take me to the hospital. I've been cut. Robert recalled that on the drive over, John said, They better be able to make me a new penis. When they reached the hospital, John seemed relaxed. He even stopped to chat with a friend he recognized in the ER waiting room. A physician approached John, who was holding a bloody sheet over his lap. The ER doctor, seeing the extent of the blood loss, thought that John had cut his wrists and asked to see them. John replied, It's not my hand that's cut. John pulled down his sweatpants to show the doctor. Shocked, the doctor telephoned the on-call urologist and told him to come in right away. While John seemed almost unnaturally calm during his ordeal, Lorena was in a state of panic. She didn't know where to go, so she drove to the salon where she worked. There, she threw the knife away in the garbage bin outside the store. The salon was empty. It was still just around 4 a.m., so Lorena got back into the car and drove to the home of her boss, Jana Basuti. Lorena frantically pounded on her boss's door until she was allowed in. Jana could hardly understand Lorena. She was crying so hard. When Lorena calmed down enough to explain what happened, Jana immediately called the police. By this time, the urologist, Dr. James Sane, had arrived at the hospital to see John. He observed that John's penis had been completely amputated at the base. It was a clean cut, he recalled almost surgically precise. In the doctor's opinion, the cut had been made with a great deal of force. Doctors also estimated that John had lost about a third of his body's blood volume. Once they stabilized him, John asked if doctors could fix him, but because they didn't have the missing appendage, the best they could do was close the wound. Police spring into action, hoping to find the penis before it was too late to reattach it. John gave them permission to search the apartment, but they came up empty. Around the same time, Lorena turned herself into the police station. They had several questions for her. Most of them related to the location of John's severed member. Lorena couldn't think straight. Her heart was racing, but she tried to focus on the reason she was here. John had beat her and raped her for years. She had to tell someone. She tried to talk about it, but the police kept interrupting her. They said they would come back to the abuse, but she needed to give them information first. She froze when she realized they were asking her about John's penis. She knew she would have to tell the whole story, but she didn't know how. Her mind blanked when she tried to grasp the details. She tried to work her mind backward, replaying the entire morning in her head until she recalled that moment in the car. She remembered holding something in her hand. Seeing the blood and realizing what she must have done, she could hardly bear to relive it, but she forced her mouth to form the words. She told them everything she remembered about her escape from John. Lorena couldn't tell the police exactly where the penis was, 
but she remembered the intersection where she had stopped to throw it out the window. She gave them as much information as she could recall. Officers rushed to the scene and searched. Within five minutes, they were successful. A police sergeant discovered the penis. By some accounts, he actually stepped on it. About 12 feet from the road, hidden in some tall grass, across the street from a 7-Eleven convenience store. They packed in an ice from the store. The physicians later joked about the fact that the penis was rushed to them in a brown paper hot dog bag. Surgeons operated for the next nine hours, working to repair the arteries and reattach the penis. For some of this time, Lorena remained at the police station answering questions. The officers noted that she was highly emotional and cried throughout the questioning. She told the officer interrogating her that her husband was excited by forced sex and that he had raped her earlier that evening. Police then brought her to Prince William Hospital, the same hospital where John was undergoing surgery so that doctors could conduct a rape kit. It showed that John had recently ejaculated inside Lorena. After the examination, Lorena returned to the police station for more questioning. When the officer asked if she had cut her husband, she admitted that she had. When he asked if she knew what she was doing when she cut him, Lorena replied, No, I guess not. The officers released Lorena after the interrogation. She was allowed to go back home that morning, but within a few days, she was charged with malicious wounding, which carried a potential penalty of 20 years in prison. She was arrested and released on a $5,000 bond. Soon after her release, she filed for divorce. At that point, John was still recovering from his injuries. His prognosis was positive. Doctors believed that his penis would regain full function, but John had other concerns beyond his health, as authorities continued to investigate Lorena's allegations of rape. John initially told police that he and Lorena had not had sex on the morning of the 23rd, but after police confronted him with the results of his wife's rape kit, indicating that his sperm had been found in Lorena, he changed his story. He then said he might have had sex with his wife while he was still asleep, and that was why he couldn't remember doing it. Within a few weeks, a grand jury indicted 26-year-old John Bobbitt with marital sexual assault. Like Lorena's malicious wounding charge, marital sexual assault also carried a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. Prosecutors opted not to charge John with the more serious crime of marital rape, which would have carried a potential life sentence because it was harder to prove. Under the Virginia standard at the time, in order to prove marital rape, prosecutors had to show that the couple was estranged at the time of the attack and the victim had to have sustained serious permanent physical damage. Lorena and John weren't estranged at the time of the alleged sexual assault. They were still living together. And while the doctor recovered John's sperm while performing a rape examination, he did not find any significant physical damage to Lorena's body. Former Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Donald S. Byer Jr. commented that, Virginia has a tough standard for marital rape. It's a much tougher standard than stranger rape. We need to look into it. Women's rights advocates took the opportunity to decry Virginia's law. Susan Fain, an assistant professor of justice at American University said, what this law is saying is that you can rape your wife. It certainly is a major issue for the feminist movement. Activists weren't the only ones taking note of the case. 
By that point, journalists had caught wind of the story. Lorena's account of rape and abuse became a footnote as the media seized upon the lurid details of her crime. John and Lorena Bobbitt were soon household names all over the country. Coming up, we'll talk more about the media frenzy and the first of the Bobbitt trials. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. Around 3 a.m. on the morning of June 23, 1993, 24-year-old Lorena Bobbitt cut off her sleeping husband's penis with a carving knife. She claimed she lashed out at 26-year-old John because he regularly abused and sexually assaulted her throughout their marriage, right up until the morning when she put an end to it. Within a few weeks, both John and Lorena faced criminal charges, John for marital sexual assault and Lorena for malicious wounding. Both faced a 20-year prison sentence if convicted. John faced a jury first. His trial was set for November of 1993. Lorena's malicious wounding case was scheduled to take place two months later, in January of 1994. In the months leading up to the court dates, the media enthusiastically latched onto the story. Late-night television hosts and Saturday Night Live sketches were quick to deride the couple. Even President Bill Clinton quipped about the Bobbits. Amid the fervor, anyone even remotely connected to the infamous crime found themselves in the spotlight, from Lorena's boss, Jana Basuti, to the couple's neighbors and even the surgeon who performed John's surgery. Everyone was bombarded by press requests, and for the most part, they all seemed eager to talk. John and Lorena Bobbitt soon became infamous. In response, they each tried to take charge of a story quickly spiraling out of their control. John hired an attorney with a background in entertainment law to help him navigate the sudden media scrutiny. On advice from his counsel, John chose silence, declining all interviews. When questioned, his lawyer explained, that he felt John lacked the verbal and mental skills to properly express himself. But Lorena did not stay quiet. 
Jana helped her hire a public relations specialist to deal with the onslaught of phone calls and interview requests from tabloids and talk shows. With his approval, Lorena appeared in an interview on 2020 and agreed to a profile with Vanity Fair magazine. John's attorney was quick to use Lorena's strategy against her, saying that these media appearances revealed her to be a money-grubbing publicity seeker. But Lorena didn't really fit the description of a master media manipulator. In fact, her Vanity Fair interviewer, Kim Masters, noted that Lorena didn't come across as articulate. You could tell she wasn't really in a place to present her case to the world. Even so, many found Lorena Bobbitt to be a sympathetic figure. With her petite, 5 foot 2 inch, 95 pound frame and her soft, hesitant speaking voice, she projected an almost childlike vulnerability, at odds with the gruesome crime of which she was accused. And for those who had survived domestic or sexual abuse, Lorena wasn't just sympathetic, they saw her as a heroic avenger and a symbol of righteous anger. The Washington Post noted that she had accumulated a horde of admirers who saw her as a feminist folk hero. One woman who sent a letter of support to Lorena said that, the man in the situation basically got what every woman who has been abused would like to have done, but just wasn't able to do. John too had his defenders. Sidney Siller, the founder of the National Organization for Men Incorporated, criticized Lorena's fans for championing a true criminal. He said this was another indication of reverse discrimination and gender bias. As the story grew more and more sensationalized, the public's response became as much a part of the narrative as the crime itself. Los Angeles Times columnist Robin Epkarian Riley chastised both the media and the public for making too much of the Bobbitt's marriage. She observed that the national press seemed determined to turn the case into a historic battle of the sexes that exposed a vicious tug of war going on in the national psyche. But she argued, neither of the Bobbitts should be seen as a symbol for anything other than a sick marriage between two immature, angry people. As America took sides in the court of public opinion, John and Lorena both had to prepare for their actual days in court. Whatever the outcome of these trials, all of America seemed to be watching. John's trial was closed off to the media for privacy reasons because it concerned a sexual assault, but that didn't stop reporters and spectators from lining up outside of the Prince William County Courthouse. The circuit court administrator had to install extra phone lines to handle the inundation of calls. The quiet Virginia city of Manassas was quickly swept up in an international frenzy. Many of the residents seemed happy to participate. Outside the courtroom, enterprising citizens sold penis-shaped cookies and t-shirts reading, Manassas, a cut above the rest. Inside the courtroom, however, the atmosphere was more somber. The Commonwealth's attorney, Paul B. Ebert, opened with the statement, This is a tale of a tormented woman. Then, he let Lorena tell the jury of her torment in her own words. She launched into her testimony, but had some trouble getting her story across. Lorena's nerves rattled as she looked across the courtroom, seeing dozens of watchful eyes. She knew that they weren't seeing her, the real her, 
they were only seeing that crazy woman who did something unspeakable to her husband. She was trying to overcome that. She was trying to explain how John made her feel, how frightened she was, how helpless she felt, how angry, how all those feelings boiled inside her until she was driven to do something incomprehensible. But it was hard to explain anything when the lawyers attacked her every word and branded her a liar. And worse, there was John. His presence alone made her tremble. He was seated over at the defense table, staring at her, shaking his head at her. Even now, after everything, he found a way to make her feel worthless. Lorena struggled to find the right language, but her limited English escaped her. It was too much pressure, and she felt she was crumbling underneath it. As Lorena answered questions posed by John's attorney, she sometimes fell silent for long stretches or said that she didn't understand. The Washington Post described Lorena's testimony as halting and sometimes flustered. The prosecution's co-counsel, Mary Grace O'Brien, said, I knew from the moment she began answering questions incorrectly that she was confused and debilitatingly nervous. In addition to her nerves, Lorena was restricted from telling her entire story. Virginia law prohibited prosecutors from presenting evidence about a defendant's prior conduct. They could only discuss the crime at hand in the trial. Under this law, the judge ruled that Lorena could only testify about the five days leading up to the alleged rape on June 23rd. She was not allowed to speak about the years of abuse she had endured during her marriage. She couldn't bring in the numerous eyewitnesses who backed her claims, nor could she discuss the arrest records showing that John had been charged with assaulting her in the past. With these limitations in place, Lorena could hardly talk about any part of her life with John except for the morning of the 23rd. She told the jury that when John came home after a night of drinking, he pushed me and held my hands. I said no twice, but John wouldn't stop. The prosecution tried to bolster Lorena's testimony by attacking John's character. They brought up his infidelity, presenting the jury with a written list of women he had affairs with. Lorena said John created the list himself and showed it to her as a way of taunting her. But John denied this. He said he possibly wrote down a list of women he was interested in, but he didn't sleep with them. He claimed he hadn't slept with anyone else during his marriage to Lorena, though in fact, he had an ongoing paternity suit filed against him. A 21-year-old woman from John's hometown of Niagara, New York, claimed and blood tests later showed that John was the likely father of her 10-month-old baby. The defense responded with the argument that even if John was a bad husband, that didn't make him a rapist. But regardless of how the jury viewed John, the ultimate test was whether they believed Lorena. John's attorneys tried to point out as many contradictions in her testimony as they could. Lorena had said that her underwear was torn when John raped her, but defense attorneys brought an expert witness who testified that he believed the rip had been made by a pair of scissors. The defense also claimed that Lorena's demeanor on the morning of June 23rd did not fit that of a rape victim. 
They presented the testimony of the emergency room doctor who examined Lorena that day, when she came in for the rape kit, hours after the attack. The doctor found it unusual that Lorena seemed very calm during the exam because, he said, quote, rape victims normally are hysterical. It's not clear whether the prosecution presented evidence to counter the emergency doctor's assertion that rape victims are usually hysterical, but victims' advocates throughout the country have repeatedly emphasized that there is no normal reaction to sexual assault. Deborah Smith, a Senior Knowledge and Information Services Analyst for the National Center for State Courts, published an instructive article on the issue. She wrote, It is important that judges, attorneys, law enforcement victim advocates, and other professionals understand the neurobiology of traumatic events such as sexual assault so that they can put the behavior of the victims in proper context. On the subject of a victim appearing relaxed, she wrote, Interviewers may be surprised by the lack of affect expressed by some victims of assault. This is caused by the brain releasing opiates during the traumatic event, which leads to a numbing effect so that the victim appears overly calm rather than hysterical. While John's defense attorneys argued that Lorena was too calm to be a rape victim, they also tried to show that she was too hot-headed to be a good wife. They painted her as a jealous and vengeful woman, They said that she cut off John's penis because she was unsatisfied with their sex life and because she did not want any other woman to have him if they got divorced. John did his best to portray himself as the victim of Lorena's rage, talking at length about the moment she cut him. Prior to that moment, he said, they had only had consensual sex. He adamantly denied ever raping his wife. The case boiled down to one person's word against the others, with the jury deciding who was more credible. After the two-day trial, the jury of nine women and three men deliberated for four hours. They came back with a verdict of not guilty. Two women held out for several hours before agreeing to acquit John of sexual assault. Ultimately, the other juries felt that there wasn't enough physical evidence to convict. One of them said, As far as I was concerned, the DA hadn't proved anything. The prosecutors later said they thought the jury might have felt that John had suffered enough. Indeed, John was relieved to be acquitted. He said, I'm glad the jury believed me. I just want to get on with my life. I've got a lot of healing to do. But whether he was sincere in his desire to get on with his life is debatable. He didn't seem ready to let Lorena go. In an interview the week after his trial, John revealed that he still carried a picture of Lorena in his wallet and that he was open to reconciliation. He was remarkably blasé about the fact that his wife had cut off his penis the previous summer, saying he might take Lorena back if she apologized. He proclaimed, quote, I'm a very forgiveful person. But however John might have felt about the mutilation, the legal system was not prepared to let the matter go. Lorena was set to face her own trial two months later in January of 1994. The same prosecutors who had just relied on Lorena as a witness in their case against John now had to turn their focus to prosecuting her. Commonwealth attorney Mary Grace O'Brien 
had no regrets about prosecuting John Bobbitt. She knew going into the case that it was exceptionally difficult to get a conviction for marital sexual assault. But after John's trial, she said, you can't refuse to prosecute a case because you think you might lose. She approached Lorena's trial with the same sense of duty, saying, I have no doubt that she has been physically and sexually abused, but we have other options in society. And what she did was not right. Coming up, the Commonwealth of Virginia presents its case against Lorena Bobbitt. Now back to the story. In November of 1993, 26-year-old John Bobbitt stood trial on the charge of sexually assaulting his wife. Despite Lorena Bobbitt's testimony that her husband raped her, the jury ultimately decided there wasn't enough physical evidence to convict, and they found him not guilty. After the trial, John embarked on a publicity tour, hoping to cash in on his newfound fame. He had hefty medical bills to pay following the surgery to reattach his penis, and he didn't have any medical insurance. John sold t-shirts emblazoned with the catchphrase, Love Hurts, among other trinkets. He went on the air with various radio personalities around the country, including shock jock Howard Stern. Stern later hosted a pay-per-view fundraising telecast in John's honor on New Year's Eve. The show included topless women and a giant penis-shaped tracker to illustrate the amount of money raised. But a bigger circus was on the horizon. Next came the trial of John's estranged wife, Lorena, scheduled for early 1994. Since the jury had cleared John on the charge of sexual assault, Prosecutors were hopeful that Lorena might plead guilty and agree to a deal to avoid trial. But Lorena refused. She was not yet an American citizen, and she worried that her legal status as an immigrant would be jeopardized by pleading guilty to a felony. Lorena decided to take her chances and go to trial, hoping that she would be found innocent the fact that she had cut off her husband's penis was not in dispute, but her lawyers argued that she should be found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Under Virginia law, her defense attorneys had to show that Lorena acted on irresistible impulse, a rare and difficult-to-argue defense. W. Lawrence Fitch, a professor of psychiatry and criminal law at the University of Virginia Law School, said that irresistible impulse is very hard to prove because it's difficult to show that someone was unable to exercise control. The question is whether she had the capacity to control her behavior but chose not to. The law in Virginia requires one to show that practically nothing would have deterred the behavior. The defense also had to prove that the irresistible impulse was caused by some mental disorder. In Lorena's case, they intended to put forth evidence that suggested that Lorena possibly suffered from several mental health problems, including battered women syndrome. Battered women syndrome is a concept developed by psychotherapist Lenore Walker. It describes a set of symptoms experienced by women who endure long-term domestic abuse. Walker called it a subtype of post-traumatic stress disorder. Since the late 1970s, Lawyers have used the diagnosis in the defense of women who kill their abusive spouses. Lorena's lawyers 
hoped they could also use it to help show that Lorena wasn't responsible for her actions when she maimed John. On January 10, 1994, 25-year-old Lorena's trial began. No cameras were allowed in the courtroom at John's case, but the media had free reign to broadcast Lorena's. News outlets prepared for wall-to-wall coverage. Reporters came from around the country as well as Europe and South America. One Manassas resident said, The vultures have really descended on us. It looks like Super Bowl Sunday. But the media was only responding to the public's fervent demand. A Newsweek poll showed that 60% of the country followed the case. A Washington Post article noted that when CNN aired an announcement from President Bill Clinton regarding an agreement to destroy nuclear warheads, hundreds of viewers called to complain that the announcement preempted coverage of Lorena Bobbitt's trial. The Los Angeles Times quoted Geraldine Ross, a specialist in anxiety disorders, to explain the public's obsession with the case. She said, Literature is filled with references to castration. It's man's worst fear. What people find so frightening and at the same time fascinating about this case is that somebody actually did it. Despite the disruptive atmosphere surrounding the courthouse, the trial had to proceed. When John was tried for sexual assault, Lorena was not permitted to discuss the prior abuse she suffered during her marriage. But at her own trial, this history became a central focus. Early in the trial, Lorena's defense lawyers called John to testify as an adverse witness or a witness whose interests are contrary to the party calling him. John denied that he abused Lorena, but admitted that he sometimes pushed her, restrained her, insulted and swore at her, and ridiculed her with comments about her body and appearance. He told the jury it was sometimes necessary to get physical with Lorena to prevent her from hurting him. His disparaging comments, he said, were jokes. To contradict John's denial of abuse, the defense called more than four dozen witnesses, including Lorena herself, to testify about John's pattern of behavior. They described how he beat, punched, pushed, kicked, and choked her. It wasn't just the defense witnesses that spoke of the abuse. Even the doctors that testified for the prosecution believe Lorena had been beaten and raped by John. What experts disagreed on was whether or not Lorena was temporarily insane when she cut her husband. The prosecution psychiatrist concluded she was well aware of what was going on. He classified Lorena's behavior as deliberate, saying, when she stood at the foot of the bed, thinking about all these bad things her husband had done before, at that moment, she had a choice to make. She chose to amputate the penis. But the defense's psychiatrist, Susan J. Feaster, the medical director of the Psychiatric Institute of Washington, saw the event differently. She said, Lorena suffered from depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and panic disorder. Dr. Feaster believed that for Lorena, the rape, the time she spent in the kitchen, and her return to the bedroom were all one continuous psychological event. During this time, Lorena was overwhelmed with emotion. Dr. Feaster suggested that Lorena had a break with reality and her mental state became psychotic. For a brief period, 
she did not have any control over her actions. Soon after the psychiatric testimony, the defense rested. The jury deliberated for seven hours and returned with the verdict. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Outside the courthouse, cheers erupted from Lorena's supporters. There was a palpable sense of relief that the jury had shown mercy to someone who had suffered so much. One juror said that he was initially a holdout, wanting to find Lorena guilty, but he eventually gave in. He said he thought most of the jurors actually agreed with him, but didn't want to punish her because of how John had treated her. Another juror said, It's a sad situation for everybody. I'm glad it's over, and hopefully, the healing process will begin for her. John Wayne Bobbitt was not present at the end of the eight-day trial, but his uncle, Bill Byro, said that John expressed shock at the outcome. He said, You mean she got away with it? Byro added, John was smeared. She got off. But things weren't so simple for Lorena Bobbitt. She thought that a not guilty verdict meant that she would be allowed to go home, but her insanity defense meant that she wasn't free to be released. The law required that she be remanded to the custody of the state's mental health commissioner. Her lawyer had tried to explain this, but perhaps because of the language barrier, Lorena had not understood the ramifications of her plea. Lorena was required to stay at Central State Hospital in Petersburg, Virginia for a 45-day evaluation period, after which the doctors would present their opinions to the court on whether continued hospitalization would be necessary. Lorena couldn't comprehend it. She thought that the verdict would finally bring an end to this chapter of her life. She could be a normal person, left alone with nobody scrutinizing her every word and action. Now, she learned, it wasn't over yet. As the shock wore off, Lorena felt angry. If anybody should be locked up, it should be John, not her. He was the violent one. She had lost control only once. He had lashed out dozens and dozens of times, and nobody called him crazy. Lorena watched as two officers arrived to escort her away. Her lawyer said that she was going to get help, but this didn't make her feel any better. All she knew was that her life would soon be in the hands of complete strangers. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with the final episode on John and Lorena Bobbitt. We'll discuss how John and Lorena adjusted to their new lives after so many months in the spotlight. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.